make a start. Uh, for those who don't know, I'm Jonathan Mickey. I'm director of the Department for Continuing Education here, University of Oxford's Department for Continuing Education, and this is one of the department's regular seminar series. Uh, the topic, as you, as you know, is impact. I mean, all the speakers will, will no doubt tell you their, their take on that. There's, there's increasing pressure on universities not just to think up great thoughts and do great research, but make sure that it does have, have an impact in the real world. Of course, if you look at the history of Oxford or any other great university, you see they always have had um, impact. I mean, obviously, the breakthroughs in, in uh, um, science and, and across the, the uh, topic area over the decades and centuries has, has uh, often come from research in, in universities. Um, but there's been more public uh, focus on it. Clearly, one, one way universities do have an impact is through the Department for Continuing Education, part-time programmes and so on. And it's uh, particularly um, appropriate, perhaps, for the seminar today when the long-awaited government green paper on higher education finally came out after much delay, having been trailed as, as uh, going to go big on, on um, access and, and so forth. And, and indeed, uh, impact. And it talks about just about everything you can imagine, uh, with one exception entirely missing, which is part-time students. <laughs> Possibly because their, their uh, government record at the moment is, is so bad on, on part-time students, they uh, either don't want to draw attention to it, or it's a prediction as to what they think will uh, continue to happen to them. So we hope, obviously, while we are turning that tide in Oxford, part-time study in Oxford is, is um, doing better now than, than ever before. Uh, and our, our first speaker, indeed, is one of our, our part-time students, Georgie. So I'll hand over to Georgie. Thank you very much, and hi everybody. I'm uh, glad to be here, and um, especially that impact is the subject of today's seminar. I've been talking about the seminar two days ago with Jonathan, and he told me about a colleague who remained unnamed, that when he had one and a half hours to give a presentation, kind of screwed up quite badly and didn't even get beyond the introduction. And whereas uh, at another occasion when he only had 10 to 15 minutes, he made it to the point of a very good presentation. So I hope you and I will experience the same effect. Uh, the more so as Jonathan's second uh, remark was, if you talk for 15 minutes and don't get to the point, this might mean that you don't have a point, which I surely <laughs> hope not. Okay, so... Um, as most of you who have read the abstract, which I hope, um, know that my subject is social impact, and more specifically, I'm interested in how to best measure the effects of charities, foundations, social enterprises, etc., working for the common good. And so if we think about the primary impacts that these organizations usually have, it is social cohesion, political stability, so thinking about it at a very aggregate level, uh, and similar aspects. So I'm trying to explore these, um, these final outcomes um, and how we get to them, and how we can assess them in four steps. So I'm going to use physical impact as the metaphor and as a linking connection through all the steps um, that I'm actually making. And I'm uh, using the metaphor of a billiards game um, to kind of connect uh, physical impact with economic impact and then move to social impact to see what the problems are that arise when we think about social impact and what the deficits of existing approaches are in order to finally um, arrive at 
the response that I give, uh, which is that focusing on capital forms um, is a way of dealing with the problems that we have with social impact. So the foundation is impact. Here you see um, a picture that I was already referring to. And if we think about the billiards game, you usually have a physical impact chain that if you want to trace it in an experimental design, you have an impulse, um, then you have a contact between um, the white ball and the others, um, which then gain momentum. They move and then there are certain trajectories and finally they end up in certain positions. And if you have um, an experimental design, um, a physical experimental design, you have perfect information on pretty much everything. So you know the course and the direction of the brake shot, you know the size and the weight and the exact placement of the billiard balls, um, as well as the cushions, and like that you can track the motions. So when we think about economic production um, at an aggregate level, we have a similar constellation of factors. So if you think about economic production, you have resources which are the inputs uh, into um, the whole impact chain, um, which are usually commodities if you think about industrial production, and you have labor and capital, which usually comes in the form of production sites, machines, etc. And these are used to transform the inputs into outputs, which are marketable goods, which then contribute to an outcome, which is, in its main effect, uh, a contribution to economic prosperity. So if we look at that, we have a similar level of perfect information on all the factors we need to assess what's happening there. So now what's the problem when we think about social impact? The problem is that confusion arises. And as you can see, the picture here is a bit more blurred. You don't see the two balls on the left and on the right-hand side. So they might be there, they might not be there. They might be at a greater distance to the other balls. They might be greater or smaller as the others. And also you see that the playing field um, is not that, um, well, that precise anymore. So the cushions have disappeared and well, you just have less information. And what is this caused by? So actually, in the first steps, you have a similar constellation of factors. You also have resources, which are usually not commodities, but ideas and concepts. You have labor and capital going in there. Uh, in terms of capital, we have a difference in the sense that it's not so much about production sites or machines, but about other capital factors, like social capital or political capital, that I'm going to get back to that, because it's the central point of what I'm uh, going to refer to later on. But the critical two aspects, when we think about where is the confusion coming from, is when we move from the transformation process to outputs, and then from outputs to incomes. And the problem is that when you go from the transformation process to outputs, you just have a larger variety of outputs. Um, these are events, interactions, systems, rather than discrete goods. So it might be a system of neighborhood health that these organizations are creating. It might be a platform um, for consumer protection or for envi environmentally sustainable consumption. Um, it might also be actor networks that kind of try to enforce certain political positions. And these different systems feed to various degrees into the final outcome, some of which I've uh, named earlier, but we, we have some more that, that come in here. And so you see that there's a problem both with the measurement of these very complex constructs, as well as with the attribution within the impact process. So if we think about this 
metaphorically, it's that, the, as I said before, the size of weight and exact placement of the billiard ball is not that clear anymore, uh, as well as the distance and the padding of the cushions, and so we have a difficulty in tracing the motions, and so the causal connections just become less clear. So we've got two existing attempts of how to deal with this. So how do we assess these outcomes? So the first picture, I guess, is quite straightforward. It's a scale, so it's about the costs and benefits. So it refers to cost-benefit analysis. You might be more puzzled about the second one, um, as I have been as well. But this is, I think, the second hit I got when I was searching in a German fixed portal for satisfaction. So apparently Germans think that cows, or at least the landscape, gives you a very high degree of satisfaction. I don't know whether I would have had the same results uh, in a UK um, picture database, but anyway. So we could also use this picture, I suppose, to refer to life satisfaction approaches. So what are the, the problems with the, with the existing approaches? I think, especially because it's quite often used in a policy context in the UK, most of you know roughly what cost-benefit analysis is, and it is looking at the cost of an intervention and it's trying to assess the benefits that come from all the outcomes that we've been discussing earlier. And it does so by trying to monetize these outcomes, which is fair for certain organizations or interventions. Think, for example, of work integration, where the main benefit derives from the fact that you bring someone who's been out of the job market into the job market, you create who creates income for uh, themselves and also saves the state money because they, the state doesn't have to pay any transfers anymore. But it's less fit or even unfit where the primary effects are very hard to monetize. So, for example, what's the monetary value of social relations or self-esteem? So, of course, cost-benefit analysis scholars have tried to find answers to that, but none of that none of those seem to be very satisfying, uh, and the fact that we often see cost-benefit analyses um, in terms of social impact is that these aspects, although they might be central to the intervention, are being disregarded. So instead of ending up um, at the picture on the left, um, where you have a snapshot, but still a snapshot of all the balls that you actually want to see, you end up having an incomplete picture. So you lose information, on several um, important components uh, which might actually be central to the intervention. The other approach is life satisfaction. Um, and life satisfaction, if you boil it down, is about the question, how satisfied are you with X, Y, Z, or with your life in total? So if you do that, it's quite a simple measure and it's easily, easily applicable, but the problem as you might have recognized already, is that this is at being asked at a very aggregate level, which means that you lose a lot of sensitive information when you only look at satisfaction, because there's many other components that influence satisfaction, but that you're not assessing in the process. So this would be, if we think about evidence-based healthcare, we would have new blood pressure medication, and we would only ask the people whether their health satisfaction is satisfied or not disregarding the actual effect on blood pressure. And so what you have here is quite different to what you have in cost-benefit analysis because you're only taking the final positions of the balls into account and from there you try to deduct what has happened. <coughs> Which is fine um, as long as the balls are not of different sizes 
as you see here, the white, the red, the orange, and the other red ball, are bigger than the others. And if you try to use that in order to deduct what has happened, this is going to have quite some other implications as if you assume that all of the balls have been of equal size. So what I'm proposing in order to address the social impact problem is to circumvent the two steps where the confusion arises. So I propose you start earlier in the impact chain and you look at the capital forms that I've mentioned earlier and the special thing about the population of organizations that I'm interested in is that they're not only using social capital, for example, social networks, social connections, or political capital, which might be political participation or the, the assertion of certain political positions, um, but that they are creating, actively creating these sorts of capital. And by doing that, so by focusing on the sorts of capital, you are, metaphorically speaking again, and you see that in that picture, you're assessing the size, the weight, and the exact placement of the billiard balls, and also um, the energy at the initial contact, and then you go on from there, which is to say you use a proxy for social impact. And instead of starting with the final positions and trying to deduct um, what has happened, you start with where the movement starts, and then use that as a proxy for the effects that might follow. Um, and if you try to trace all these effects, we have seen that you've run into problems um, that are probably going to be worse than the loss of information in terms of the, the approximate factor. And so the benefits are that this is more immediate, it's closer to organizational activity, it is at the same time more detailed as for if you compare it to the life satisfaction approach. It's also more embedded into a wider variety of social sciences. And now we finally arrive at my last slide, and I don't have the time to go into all the different sorts of capital um, or to um, show you how this would be done or how am I, I am trying to do it empirically. Um, but I think in order to do that, it's important to understand why I'm doing it in the first place. So this is why I chose this approach in order to present my research. So if you think about social, I'm going to use social capital as an example of how you could actually measure it. So you have several fields which are in a way unified by one criterion. It could be community building, it could be associational life, or even elderly housing ones, which is actually the case that I'm using um, in the empirical investigation. But in order to explain that, I'll need too much time. Anyway, it's basically about the social capital they produce all these organizations or all these interventions and the follow-up effects that result from them. Um, and so if you can detect um, a change in social capital in these interventions, you've already shown the you've already shown part of the of the social impact chain and that with a higher degree of um, of uh, validity um, and reliability than if you try to track the whole thing. Um, and so what you could do, uh, and what I am trying to do, is to use a survey and investigate the components that form part of uh, social capital, which is social contact, so I was referring to social networks, this might be the number, the frequency, and other um, aspects of social contact. Um, it might be, you should also look at the mutual support that there is, or the sense of belonging, um, trust, uh, and the engagement for or within the community. 
And these are things that you can assess more objectively than um, if you just ask, has this increased your satisfaction or not? And at the same time, it's things that you can measure directly without trying to transfer them into monetary value. So this is basically the approach, and I hope I have not puzzled you all that much, and I'm looking forward to receiving your questions. minutes of uh, um, for questions now before going on to the next speaker. So, first open, any questions or indeed comments? Yeah, I was just interested in the social media thing. Which social media networks are you using? How do you take an account if some are closed and private and so on? And which do you prioritise? Which are on the ascendant and which are on the descendant? That kind of thing. So if you apply the social capital idea to the social media networks, you mean? So what you could do is um, to do, especially in where you, where you have the data available, you could do a proper social network analysis. So if you have real-world networks, this is sometimes a bit harder to do because you really have to go out there and ask people. And I told you that I've been working with these elderly people, so you can't just send surveys out, so you have to do it um, by visiting them and doing it. And I think that's, that's a very, very nice and easily accessible uh, example, actually, social media networks, and where you can see how central certain positions in that network are and how interconnected it actually is. Um, and depending, of course, on, on the subject that they would be referring to, you would have some variations in terms of, of what you're looking at in the network, obviously, but I think this is a very, very good case and very accessible in terms of the method. Well, it's really following on from the first comment here. Um, on social media, it's, it's a very renowned area for um, ethics to go very wobbly and deep when you conduct your research and you're using it as a research tool, which is quite different from just using it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, particularly, can we take your case of elderly community, which I believe is your primary focus. Right. Um, but um, that, that's even tricky because um, you will find there are so many variables, not just in the way human behavior will vary in any research you do, but in elderly people it's particularly fraught because there is variability in their changing personalities, their health, all the other factors that tend to sensitize what you're getting is less than Mm. Um, so that's one point. I wondered how you would uh, how you approach it. Mm -hmm. The other is the criteria that you gave about um, the, the examples of social context, interest, support, etc., sense of belonging, trust, mm -hmm. engagement with the community. Mm -hmm. These are all important, but do you have them in any order of, of weight? Um, so, uh, as to the first question, um, I think you're totally right, and you have to include that in, in the whole analysis, but that's not in contradiction with the approach that I'm proposing, I would say. So, um, what I'm doing is actually look at, looking at you know, the history of people in the sense that, okay, the ideal, the ideal case would probably be that you assess everybody when they enter a specific 
um, housing facility and then see how their social capital develops because then you have a baseline. The problem is that usually there's not so much fluctuation and you can reasonably do that in a period of time that covers a, a default project. Um, and so what I'm doing is to ask people um, how uh, interconnected they've been in their previous life or earlier, when, whenever that might be, but whether they used to be the sociable type or the less sociable type, in order to see how this also influences whether someone has a, social, a high social capital or not. So you might have um, the, you might suspect that someone who's always been sociable will have high social capital no matter where they are, and that's factors that I actually try to actively assess as well as health, um, and you can always include the satisfaction question and see whether social capital is at all relevant uh, in terms of social satisfaction, because especially when you work with elderly people, uh, and the experience that I've made, they've gone through so many um, life-changing events that many of them just say, my life satisfaction level is at 10, uh, 1 out of 10. Um, and this is mainly due to the fact that many of them have experienced the World War, for example, and and just say, okay, I should be quite satisfied with what I have now because I have a settled life, and although I don't have that many contacts, um, I'm satisfied. So these are things that you that you have to um, that you have to include. And the second question was again, can you remind me? The order of your um, oh right, yeah. I think um, it's wrong to start with an order of criteria, but rather to see where the variation in social capital um, refers, like where it comes from when you got the data and when you do some sensitivity analysis um, with the data. So there would be a weighting that sort of, you can of course derive from what's said in the literature, but what you can also do is kind of think about all these elements and see how you could assess them and then see where the main variation comes from in order to give different weights to different aspects in the, in, in the whole. Well, I'm, I'm not making any promise, but it's random selection. You're not doing every, every, everybody in the home, so you need to, you need to That's right, that's right. So what selection. So you're going to find that some of them trust belonging to some of them. It's not going to be very skewed by their own That's right. So, but what, so mm. in some ways you've got, got somehow give some kind of weight, I think, to each factor. That's right. But what you can do, so the, the ideal case would actually be to have a randomized sample where you have a group of elderly people and then you put some of them in that one model and some yes. of them in the other. Yes. But this is a situation that you don't find in reality unless you find a government who's uh, ready to support, you know, such a project and then you would have to, you have a, a lot of ethical um, considerations to take into account whether you can do that at all or not. But what you what you can do is to um, do a propensity uh, a propensity uh, score matching, um, which means that you're trying to only compare uh, persons that are very similar to each other in terms of their socioeconomic um, factors, um, and that's some, something that you can work with in order to kind of reduce the bias. Um, so, following up on that question, if you're assessing impact, then there probably is no absolute about what satisfaction is. You probably can't put a definitive number on it. Mm -hmm. But the point of impact is the change. Mm -hmm. So, 
whether or not you've got the weightings right might not be relevant if you're using assistant models then measuring the change is a measure of impact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. So what you can do is, of course, you can do a longitudinal study, which I am doing. Um, and what you also can do is um, kind of have two different models that you're, that you're comparing and see basically where they differ in terms of the baseline. And because we're doing these interviews and not only a, uh, an, an anonymous survey, um, you have a possibility to obviously talk to the people and you have some qualitative data that can go in there. And then there's other setups, I guess, where exactly for that reason it is um, very important to assess it in a qualitative fashion rather than a quantitative one, which allows you to kind of trace this projection. Multiple models, you can sort of cross-calibrate one model to another and right. draw both models. Good. Okay, well, should we leave that there for now? Thanks very much, Georgie. And then, then the three speakers are going to come up at the end on a panel. So if you've got any further uh, questions for Georgie, then hold them back till then. Um, but next, actually, Matt Smart is going from questioner to presenter in one uh, fell swoop. Um, I'll leave it to Matt to introduce himself substantively in terms of what he's going to talk about and his, his take on impact. But just to say that, that Matt worked here at the university um, for 11 or 12 uh, years in various uh, roles, including the um, research assessment exercise and the research excellence framework, which is, uh, for which impact is increasingly um, important, uh, but is now working directly uh, on, on impact for the university to try and uh, assist um, colleagues across the university, ensure that their, their research does have the sort of impact that they're, they're hoping for. But Matt, I think you can explain that better than me. <laughs> Thank you. Um, just a quick Scope through my background. Previously, I've been in research teams and conducted research in psychiatry. I've ended up running a research team even though I was an administrator. Um, I've worked on the research assessment exercise at national level on the assessment panel um, and worked here as administrator for Smith School of Enterprise and Environment, which is a highly impactful policy and business unit part of the university. Uh, now in knowledge change impact team, so supporting this kind of activity across the university. Um, so probably best to start by establishing what I mean by impact. Impact means a lot of things to different people. My perspective is very much from the research council's definition, funding council's definition, um, the kind of things which keep the university going and uh, sort of drive the activities of the university. Uh, so examples of impact, uh, commercial opportunities, you know, money, selling gadgets, licensing, societal benefits, well-being, health, public understanding, um, policy, which often is good, often is bad, who knows, but it can be certainly impactful, and CBD professional understanding. There's lots of definition of impact, and I think we should go to fundamentals. So, we live in thought space. If you look around, can you see anything which hasn't been put in place by somebody thinking about it and somebody doing something about it? Everything around is the paint, the tiles and ceiling, where at some point somebody's thoughts and they've been made manifest. If you compare to a tribe in Western Brazil with little contact, those trees growing pretty much where they wanted to. Um, there's some paint which has been put to practice, but it's largely sort of as nature intended, compared to a city where 
the distance between the lampposts, the distance between the trees, somebody's decided, committees have decided that. Now, the only things that aren't results of thought are probably the slight, and probably the water is regulated in some way. This came from research in companies in academia, or rather, more accurately, it came from the application of that research. So, um, my view of impact is impact is equivalent to society. Lots of ways we can make impact. If you're a researcher, you might sort of see yourself in certain areas, and this could be a way of mapping where your impact might go. You're probably doing impact, you don't realise, and this is a way of identifying what impact you are doing. Um, I did, at one point, put in a slightly facetious false version, because a lot of these could be meaningless. Strategic alliances could mean anything to anybody. But actually, they're all real ways of generating impact. They're all happening, and this is so the activity of the team winding largely. Um, fun bit is case studies. So uh, I look after four funding streams across the university, total about 700,000 as a portfolio, about 75 projects at the moment. And I get to see the development of case studies. So first one, Bernard Mappin statistics. Uh, Bernard observed that alpha helices, which are used in sort of drug discovery, in proteins, there was no standard way of categorizing the shape of them. There were various models, but no standard. So we thought, how about we crowdsource some people to assess whether they think it's a kink or a curve or a straight alpha helix. So we did so. It involved some schools, some professionals, some amateurs, all the various bits of training. Um, it got some good coverage. Involved schools, it's got public engagement in it, and they did come up with a new gold standard for our Felix classification. Robert Scotland in Plant Sciences, that's not Robert, that's the uh, Rosie Wise illustrator. Um, vitamin A is a bit of an issue um, in terms of diets in a lot of South America and some of Southern Africa. There are a lot of native species of sweet potato, or Pecamia, which are prevalent but are not farmed. And it's probably worthwhile for farmers to identify what those species are and then do some crossbreeding, and that way they can increase the vitamin A in the population. So, how to help farmers identify which ones do have vitamin A and which ones don't? The taxonomical study that we followed um, led to the identification of 18 new species in Bolivia. The paper came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, algorithm development. He also works on apps with engineering for automatic recognition because mobile phone use is very prevalent there, so there's now apps to help farmers identify what species is which. Um, and also, some of this work has led to identifying that a lot of botanical catalogues in museums are probably somewhat inaccurate. And we're now working out how to break this news to museums. Um, lots of international partners were involved and some national ones. Don Granger in physics. If we get somebody to populate a bit of Wikipedia in an area that we know, will that increase its to our website? and it's to our papers. £3,000, yes it did. It's very noisy data, somewhere between 10 and 50% increase, I'd say probably about 20%. It's be accurate about it, but it definitely had an impact. So um, we've yet to see whether that leads to higher citations, but it's a reasonable assumption to make. Um, and this sort of game playing is actually quite routine in America. They have master's courses to do it. Tom Hart Zoology, uh, probably my personal favourite. It's difficult to find an impact box that doesn't tick. Um, background image. 
is penguins uh, using a kind of automated program which is applied to the images derived from static cameras in the Antarctic. So they've got a range of 67 static cameras which take pictures of penguins, or most of the time pictures of landscape, and occasionally some penguins set up. But the automation isn't actually very good at assessing the age of penguins or the health of penguins, and penguins are good identifiers not for their own population, but for fisheries and that kind of thing as well. So, similar approach. Uh, crowdsourcing, and lots of people involved to uh, identify what they thought these different blobs were. Spotting whether things are rocks or not. This fed into improving the algorithms that are used. Um, spotted some Zooniverse funding was available. We got that, so we got 70,000, but the website and a lot of the background behind it was paid by that. Some staff, um, it's led some app development. Um, the algorithm development is all for upscaling, so this can then be rolled out, automated better, you get better monitoring fisheries, it can be applied to other species and defined to other species. It's good public engagement, fisheries do use it and it's informed some fisheries policies. Cruise liners, um, that's quite good because they've discovered that. There's lots of imaging which is provided to navigation, which isn't actually that useful in ice flows. Some of the images captured by the cameras are now used for shipping navigation. We also use the cruise liners for charity fundraising, because there's lots of wealthy individuals there, and that builds funds for charity. And a couple of weeks ago, he was on a ship in the Thames, talking with government about environmental policy. And so it grows, there's a pipeline. Impact case studies, the team I mean, we look after the university's impact case studies. There's about 150 of them. There's data by department, division, funder. We use these for talking to funders. Um, this is an example of that. This example there. These are physical versions as well. Uh, pro vice chancellors do wander around with these and use them to talk with ministers and CEOs. So they're genuinely used and we're still building these. Um, you can ask sometimes, how would you record your impact? And there's lots and lots about, let's develop a database which records it in 15 different categories and can store your web links here. And basically, you print it, file it, don't lose the file. <laughs> Simple as that. Um, that way you have something data stamped which is needed in REF, and you've got evidence that there was a website there. Journalism, uh, you know, there'll be something that's online from a newspaper. There's not a chance that that link is going to be there in 2020. So that will solve it. Um, I've been involved in some archaeology as well, so I thought it would be nice to get the archaeology of government funding involved. A while ago, we just had Blue Skies research. 2001, research assessment exercise. This was, how good is that research? So government funding informed through assessment of the quality of the research. 2008, esteem was added. The notion of, what do other people think of your research? But that was peer group assessment. 2014, the research excellence framework added impact, which is what do other people think of your research? How impactful is it? And you notice that it's research excellence framework. It's admitting that it's not just assessing research. It's assessing, it's assessing the framework of research. Now, research councils include pathways to impact, part of the application, and 2020, 
one might postulate that impact could be greater than 20%. Most people tend to think it will be. Um, and you do tend to find a lot of coins in archaeology. Uh, this is just my view of where the funding is going. Um, I don't think we're going to see a higher proportion of GDP given to pure research. But there is actually a lot of funding goes towards impact knowledge exchange at the moment. So the government is putting money into leveraging funding and outcomes from other sources. Not from industry, but not necessarily. Um, another version of the archaeology of impact. If you've seen archaeology, you're, you're very aware archaeology looks for objects. And that's tended to be the case in impact. It's generally assessed, did people make widgets, were they sold? Policy is creeping in, as it is in archaeology. Car licensing is actually a policy measure. Policy is thoroughly embedded in the impact agenda now, and the recent analysis showed that about 90% of the ref impact case studies were policy-based. If you're a researcher, why would you do impact? Many, many reasons. Um, you can improve your research, you get access to previous data and others learn from you. Um, you can build your team. You can join with industry teams or policy teams. There's funding for exchanges. There's a lot of funding out there for impact. Nobody ever got an OB or a medal for their research. Only ever for how it's applied. Ref impacts or you could say ref impacts your career. Um, if you work in a department, you get higher overheads from industry and you can get some core funding. Another reason you might do impact? The government trend is probably unlikely to change, so you might as well get good at doing it now. Um, quite a few academics do reasonably well financially out of it. Um, and even if you're not particularly motivated by money, a spin out selling for 527 million is quite persuasive. There's a lot that you could do with that. And quite often you hear academics say they don't understand my work. This is dreadful, I've been misinterpreted. Well, it's going to be part of your role to do something about that if you care about it. <laughs> when I was working in psychiatry, we used to prepare press packs, we'd have press meetings, and we'd do policy reports. Tell people what to make of the research. The main thing is, if you work in academia, you might wonder why you wouldn't do impact. So, how to do impact? There's pathways to impact, that's the research council's part of funding application. They call it pathways to impact, and it's quite descriptive. Um, here's an example companies got a problem, they want help finding a solution, they want some research done, they're not going to pay an academic to do it, but they might give you a doctor studentship. Studentship can lead to research grants, you can get core funding through that, and the team I'm in, this is what we see on a pretty much daily basis. Um, another model of pathways to impact is you put it into your research funding, you get a research project, you can get additional funding such as an impact accelerator, and then afterwards you get follow-on funding. These are all research council funding streams. Or another way of visualising it is, uh, okay, that's the traditional route to impact for academia. Traditional funding mechanisms, publications, impacts might arise. This has changed quite thoroughly. There's lots of different funding pathways to impact can lead to knowledge exchange, to impact. There's big, big funding over here, big funding over here, which we generally don't tap into, generally aware of. Um, 
the government funding for knowledge exchange impact is intended to let us tap into that. Publications of themselves do not yield impact. So this is a way of getting back down to it. Or another version is, these are standard research, the dark blue, so small research project tends to lead to a larger one, you build up your career that way. The other colours are all other aspects where there's activity with funding for it. So if you talk with non-academics at the start, you start partnerships, innovation vouchers can go to external companies so they can afford to buy some of the services, they can get fellowship to exchange with you, there's follow-on funding from research councils, so I sort of help people get these and done some recently. <coughs> that often does market surveys, that kind of thing, or what's the application? Market surveys don't have to be about widgets. Follow-on funding, I'm putting a bit of one of those two weeks ago. Innovate UK, these all follow on. Horizon's a big goal because that's where a lot of funding is and impact is embedded in it. You can also through this kind of approach, by working with industry, you're more likely to get proper training centres awarded, and there's also licensing spin outs across the bottom. Um, so, this is the area that my team tends to work in is helping, making sure this helps that. Types of impact who's going to help them do it? You might say, whose job is it to do impact if you're a researcher? And you could well say, it's not my job to do impact, somebody else should do it. Could be fair comment. So there is a lot of support across the university. Continuing education actually contributes to CP professional understanding, public understanding, bits of say business school, the big variety of support across the university. There's a page which is fairly recent in support for researchers, which has a lot of pretty useful resources in it. And so if you find it, I've got some cards to give out if you want. But the information stored on this is, I believe, actually quite useful. It's guidance on how to liaise with external organisations, consulting, starting a company, public, put you in touch with lots of resources. Um, another model of how the university can interact with external organisations. These being parts of the university can help. Um, it's fairly self-explanatory. There's lots of spin-outs, professional training, business development, department administrators tend to be quite key. Uh, we look after some pages which are intended to be of use to academics and industry alike. So, funding opportunities and guides to getting knowledge change impact funding are publicly available, they're not protected. Um, they're intended to be shared, so if you want to work with industry, you can share the documents with them and they can say yes, that is or is not interesting. Um, the funding guides tend to be rather honest because I've worked on lots and lots of review panels. The psychology of review panels is actually very important, not known by many applicants. Um, if you're going to bid for funding, bid to win. Don't, don't put in five bids half-heartedly. Actually get money. Um, and if you're in the department, who would you contact about doing impact? Um, having gone through all the areas of the university that can support it, fundamentally it's done by people who are much more like you than the background administrators. If people don't know I exist, it's probably good. Because um, this is where most of it really happens. Talking with colleagues, talking with external organisations, um, mentorship can be very useful, and the research facilitators link to your department. And if we take an example of another industry about impact and why you might want to do it, 
literature and writing. Every writer needs a platform. So there's lots of advice out for writers. And as a writer, you might think, my work is excellent, it's ridiculous that it doesn't get published, it does get published. Really, that doesn't matter. How good your book is does not matter. In the long run, probably the books that do get published a lot will be the good ones. There's a lot which are worse which don't get published. But writing a good book is probably the least direct route to getting published in the first place. It's much more about getting noticed. So from the government perspective and the funding perspective, academia is a place where new thoughts are explored. They're also explored in industrial research and in the arts. Now, it may seem like a slightly frivolous comparison, but the arts do get government funding, industrial research does to an extent, but a writer is not expecting the state to pay their salary. And I think this is where a lot of the impact drivers do come from, is government considering where new thoughts are explored, we're paying salaries in some places, not in others. So we need to change the funding drivers. It sounds grim, but actually it's a virtual circle because the more you get noticed, the more you get resources to do better research. So um, my view of why we do impact is we're in academia. Archaeologists, so um, you're going to use archaeological metaphors in this. You might want to talk to me or even uh, do some of our courses. That, that's uh, a bit frivolous. I've got, a, I've got a serious point, but the, the frivolous point is that, that picture you showed the excavation would be a total no no on health and safety grounds. <laughs> <laughs> but um, because the section's low, that go okay. But the, the, the serious point is. Um, a lot of the examples you gave, you know, it's quite easy to see how you could relate some of those projects to impact. But what about the harder areas of humanities and that sort of thing? How it's hard to see how some areas can reduce the effects of your intelligence. I don't really think there's that much of a distinction. Um, one of the funding streams I look after supports the arts and humanities quite considerably um, in terms of cross-informing between academia and practitioners, directors, performers, how the conveyance of certain thoughts intended in the piece will change over time. So um, a project which was based on plays written in Russia in a certain context in the sort of 1910s, 1920s will have a different resonance now and how they convert to a modern audience. Um, with empirical research behind it. And in terms of whether that's considered to be impactful by, by government, I tend to agree largely it's not, because they do tend to count things with a pound sign in France. Um, and I do feedback on the use of funding for research councils and sort of around the CSR, Committee Spending Review. 19 criteria, 12 of them have a pound sign in front, another three could easily put pound sign in front. Um, the rest, less potentially so. So, um, thoroughly on the side, what I tend to say is we have another project where you can count the number of, you can actually count the population of butterflies that have been saved. And you can even put a number on them if you want. But you know, how much somebody else has spent on trying to solve a problem doesn't actually tell you whether the problem is solved. Um, so, you know, 
very much on side with that. I, I don't think arts and humanities are outside the impact agenda. Um, can I ask a slightly more philosophical question, which is, I'm, I'm very, very sympathetic to public engagement and making sure that the government is not throwing away money. But um, there is a more fundamental purpose of academic research, which is the pursuit of the truth. And sometimes bureaucratic systems are not particularly good at seeing the truth. And sometimes it's the outlying academic which, uh, which, can, which can see the kind of, that little piece of knowledge which takes society forward and gives us a greater understanding of our world. If you think about someone like Galileo, um, you know, if he'd have done an impact assessment of his work after about 10 years, it would have looked pretty grim because, you know, he was um, <laughs> basically kind of persona non grata, he could have been burned, his books have been banned, no one was allowed to read it, and the equivalent of the ref bureaucracy in his time, which is probably the Roman Inquisition, took a pretty good view of the whole thing. Um, how do you stop that kind of entrenched conservatism of bureaucratic systems um, from stamping out in truly innovative outlying research? Partly, um Within the university, across academia, across academic management, there is a notion of we should do impact. And that's often taken to mean everybody should do impact. Now, um, I'm quite an advocate of saying no. <laughs> um, particularly in REF, you don't need lots of impact cases, you need a few good ones. So those people who wish to do impact will help them. If people don't, that's fine. And we'd like to help people get into that if they're inquisitive. Um, but yeah, I, I very much agree. Though I'd say uh, there was a slide that which I did include, which was um, a painting of kind of discovery in the 1760s. Research used to actually be the kind of the hobby of the privileged few before research funding came in. <laughs> So the context is, is very different. Okay, if we come back to this then in the panel, because yeah, I had some questions as well, but they're more probably appropriate for the panel. So again, if we move straight from the question <laughs> to the uh, presenter, because I'll ask you to it's, it's not designed like this. Jonathan Healy, one of our uh, associate professors in, in um, social and global history. Right, I'm normally quite cynical about these kind of single word uh, seminars um, and the idea of, kind of cobbling together something vaguely historical around a single word because history is pretty complicated and uh, it does rather violence to the uh, complexity of the past to um, fit it into such a pigeonhole. However, I'm going to have a go. When I sat and thought about that, uh, I thought, well, actually, impact is pretty important in terms of um, why we do history, not just because of the reason we just heard about uh, in terms of it's, it is our duty to communicate with the public and to actually produce something which is useful, um, but also impact is, is a very, very central word, um, a very, very central concept um, in what we might see as our kind of fundamental um, aims as historians. Now, so I sort of sat down and thought, well, what are the fundamental aims of historians? Uh, and the most basic one is to find out what happened in the past. You know, Anglo-Saxon historians, for example, spend a lot of time trying to work out exactly what happened. Um, and we do that to an extent in later periods as well. Um, later historians tend to focus slightly more on uh, the second uh, uh, big uh, bullet point, 
which is why did things happen? You know, we know that there was a civil war in the middle of the 17th century. We want to know why it happened, and we, we, we will argue about that. Um, so those are not very impacting, really. But the third one, which kind of popped into my mind as I was pondering impact uh, on the bus end this morning, um, is actually, I think, just as important. Did things matter? What was the impact of things that happened in the past? Um, so that's what I'll be talking to you about today. I'll be talking about, uh, about a series of events um, and thinking about whether they actually mattered. Did they have an impact? Um, now, my area of study is um, early modern England, so roughly 16th, 17th century, uh, and I spent a lot of time working on um, something called the, uh, the Poor Law. Uh, now, the English Old Poor Law, uh, or the Tudor Poor Law, um, was a system of um, relief for the neediest people in society, which was created in the 16th and 17th century, um, and it is the oldest national system of um, redistributive, tax-funded social welfare in the world. So I've thought a lot about what impact this system had, um, and that will be one of my sets of themes in this short little talk. And the other will be, uh, um, I, I, I want to think about uh, the impact which events have on the kinds of people who need it for relief, uh, so the poor themselves. And I, in particular, will be thinking about the impact of economic crises. Um, now, for us today, of course, economic crises, uh, we all know, they do have an impact. They clearly have an impact. Um, this um, was uh, um, one of the impacts of the, uh, the, um, the credit crunch back in 2007, is that very quickly um, these kind of queues uh, formed um, outside uh, banks, uh, particularly Northern Rock. Um, but I want to try and transpose some of these questions back in time and think about whether in the, uh, in the, the 17th century, which is my kind of main period of focus, uh, whether um, economic crises had a similar kind of impact. So to go back to that initial question, did they matter? Are they just things which are of uh, interest to economic historians? Or did they matter to people at the time? Um, the 17th century um, is a particularly important and interesting century in this regard. Um, it sees a, a, a growing marketisation of society uh, to a level which has not been uh, um, experienced before. You could probably say that's about most centuries, um, but the 17th century is you know, one of those periods which sees a quickening of the role of the market in uh, everyday social life. Um, it also sees the growth in what we term the proletariat, so people who, um, like me, have very little um, ownership of the means of production and therefore have to work for a kind of uh, a wage to, um, uh, to earn a living. They don't own um, farms so much, they don't own looms, they work for, um, they work for other farmers or they work for um, industrialists. Um, it also sees increasing uh, sophistication in terms of financial um, systems, including um, most famously the foundation of uh, the London Stock Exchange and the Bank of England, both um, at the end of the 17th century. Um, and this was linked into a growth in overseas trade. Um, it was, in fact, uh, a period of globalisation. Again, one of those words which could sort of, you know, um, attract the attention of policymakers. Um, but I'm really interested in the kind of dark side of this. Um, it was a period in which there was a lot of war. Um, there were, um, you know, warfare is, was increasingly um, having a very, very significant economic impact. Um, but also, um, there were a series of bad harvests, um, a series of 
uh, attacks of um, epidemic disease, including the bubonic plague. So one of the impacts of the bubonic plague when it hits London is anyone who can afford it leaves the city very, very quickly. And very, very quickly, um, you see the economic life of the capital um, or any city grind to a halt. Does this have an impact on the poor in London? Yes, absolutely, because they haven't got any jobs. But one of my questions is whether this has an impact around the country. Um, does it matter? Does the play matter? Um, but the 17th century is also really, really interesting um, for uh, slightly more optimistic uh, reasons. Um, and that's the two um, things um, which I noticed, uh, which I, I mentioned at the bottom here, um, and one of them in particular. For reasons that we really, really don't understand, we just don't understand, um, the bubonic plague disappeared in England in the 17th century. It's gone. It's never come back apart from to Liverpool in the 20th century. Um, we don't know why. Um, so it would be nice to kind of have some kind of understanding as to why that happened. But the, one, uh, the other thing which happens, which is something which, um, which I will try and talk about briefly uh, today, and again thinking about whether it's an impact of this first system of social welfare, um, is that the 17th century is the last century in which England suffers famine. Famine disappears in England after 1623, so that's nearly 400 years ago. That is an incredible fact uh, about English economic history, um, and I want to think a little bit about whether we can see um, that, uh, see reasons for that. Um, just to give you, I'm not going to talk through all of these, um, just to give you a sense of how frequently um, crisis happened in the long 17th century, um, this gives you a flavour of uh, some of the bad things that happened. Um, including uh, a series of bad harvests, uh, significant epidemics, financial crises, including uh, my, uh, one of my favourites, which is in 1672, the so-called Stop of the Exchequer, where Charles II's government unilaterally decides not to pay its creditors, uh, and fun, uh, the economy has a, a bit of a wobble. Um, most famously, of course, the South Sea bubble crisis in 1721. There's also a series of major wars. So, this is a crisis-prone century. Does this have an impact on the poor? How do we know? How might we go about answering this question? Um, does economic crisis uh, have an impact on the lives of ordinary people? Um, we can. And we can because of the fantastic, um, fantastically complex uh, bureaucratic system which evolved around this first system of national social welfare, the poor law. And the poor law was created by statute, but it was based on local implementation. Um, that local implementation uh, involved appointing local officers. Um, they would then uh, give money um, in weekly or monthly doles to the poor. Um, they would also give out sort of occasional doles in money, um, in goods in kind, everything from food to uh, clothing to work tools to even things like tobacco. I've even seen marshmallow given out, which apparently is good for your throat. Um, crucially though these uh, overseers of the poor and this system created records the overseers of the poor uh, recorded their dolls to the poor they recorded the money they collected from taxation they recorded who got it and these records allow us to really kind of probe into the impact oh my word <laughs> that, was, that was an accident um, there we go uh, the impact of not learning how to use PowerPoint properly. Um, so to go back to our question, can we use these records to see whether um, the economic crisis at the time had an impact on the daily lives of the poor? Well, I think we can. Um, and one thing we can do uh, is we can look at the accounts of 
and money being given to the poor. Uh, and here are a couple of examples. Widow Price of St. Saviour's Suff- uh, Southwark, 1586, uh, it was reported that she shall have four pence a week more and then her normal goal for the collectors, besides that uh, which she already had, for the keeping of a poor child till Easter next, because the weather is so hard and everything so dear. It's a very, very clear description of her getting an increased amount of money because of an economic crisis. And then a bit closer to, uh, to us here in Oxford, in Amersham, in Buckinghamshire, £9, 8 shillings and sixpence was, quote, given to the poor of the parish, which have not of the weekly, the weekly collection, i.e. those which are not already getting poor relief, uh, to buy corn in the time of dearth. So again, um, high food prices are um, causing um, the poor law system to increase the amount it's being spent. We can also look at um, petitions for poor relief. One of the most amazing sets of documents uh, are uh, for the county of Lancashire, and these um, detail individual appeals by real paupers to the, uh, the overseers and to magistrates um, asking for poor relief. And if we look at times of crisis, they quite often um, describe how economic crisis was having a very real impact on their daily lives. Um, Bridget Hesketh, for example, in these dear years, the staff of bread was almost taken from amongst us. Um, and then William Ward, especially now late by reason of uh, scarcity of bread, the hardness of the times, both he and his wife are brought into extreme want and misery. Um, interestingly, um, we do occasionally get records uh, which suggest that crises have a long-term impact. Um, people sold their goods, they then couldn't, um, they then struggled to work. Uh, one example is Richard Tomlinson. Um, he's describing a crisis in 1674, so three years before the petition, and he says that through the scarcity of the late years, your poor petitioner, being forced to run himself into debt uh, for the relief of himself and his family, whereby he is engaged unto several persons, which doth threaten to seize upon what goods he hath, and likewise to throw his body into the jail. So here, economic crisis is having a long impact. How else can we answer this question of whether um, uh, economic crises are having an impact on the poor? We can count the number of petitions that survive. We can count the number of times that people made appeals to the magistrates um, to, uh, to get poor relief. Um, and so I did this for Lancashire, whether there's enough sources that survive. And lo and behold, there are many years, 1637, 1648 to 9, around about 1660, uh, 1674 to 5. 1699. Um, and this, this kind of stuff allows us to say something about what kinds of crises are having the most impact on the poor. Um, interestingly, all of these crises, all of these peaks are one particular kind of economic crisis. They are harvest crises. So despite what I said about growing financial sophistication, globalisation, um, bubonic play, everything like that, fundamentally, in the 17th century, the key determinant of whether people um, were suffering through an economic crisis was the quality of the harvest. The other thing we can do is we can look um, quantitatively at uh, the accounts of overseers. And so I've spent a ridiculous amount of time in local record offices um, collecting um, the annual um, cost of poor relief, so it, and, and putting them into graphs like this uh, for Amersham. So you can look for peaks like here at the end of the 70s, well, around about 1710, um, and again in the 1690s. Uh, 
sorry, there's a couple more. Uh, this is King's Theory in Hampshire, where there's a very real peak here in 1665, uh, which is a plague year, uh, and Bury in Lancashire, where the uh, late 1720s and 1740, both bad harvest periods, very clearly are having an impact on the poor. Um, these are the counties I've sampled so far. Um, I've t- got a total of 68 um, sets of accounts. That's a lot of research, but that's a tiny fraction of the 10,000 parishes that there are in England. Um, but it's about as good as we can do. Um, and I've thrown these two, uh, sorry, and this gives you a sense of uh, how many parishes I have in observation. So we're kind of quite confident about this period. Um, and this kind of stuff can allow us to do things like this. Um, Ignore the kind of different ways of, uh, of, of quantifying. The, the, st- the story, from our point of view, is the same. And there are, again, periods of um, high food price, uh, of um, high poor relief costs. Broadly speaking, um, they coincide with um, high food prices. So, again, one of the conclusions of this research is that um, right into the middle of the 18th century, um, well beyond the South Sea bubble, which is there, and doesn't seem to have much of an impact at all on the poor, um, it's still the harvest which is crucial, the, the one thing that really does um, have an impact on the poor. Um, just to finish off, um, one of the questions um, we can apply all this stuff to um, is this question of um, why England escapes famine, which I think is, you know, it's a crucial question for all kinds of reasons. I just want to flip back to, um, to the Lancashire stuff. Um, unfortunately, the material starts after the last famine, which is in 1623. Um, but there's a series of um, periods where Lancashire, which is a fundamentally quite poor economy, um, is suffering incredibly high food prices and I think is you know, very much at risk from famine. The warning signs are all there. Um, but it doesn't happen. There is no famine uh, in Lancashire or anywhere in the 17th century. Um, and one obvious reason for this, particularly if we are, um, if, if we like the work of uh, people like Amartya Sen, um, is that um, the poor law is propping up people's exchange entitlements. It's allowing them enough money uh, that they can buy grain even at inflated prices. Um, and I think there is some truth in that. There do seem to be periods where um, the price of food goes up and the price of poor relief goes up. But I have to say, I'm not quite as impressed with the peaks as I thought I would be. I think that um, the um, I think that we we can sort of again we, let's let's use the archaeological metaphor probably badly in David Chapley, um, but there are different layers. The first layer is a bad harvest impacts on people's need for poor relief, hence the jump in, peti- in petitions. The second layer of impact, does that then have uh, an impact on the cost of poor relief for the parish? Yes, it does, but perhaps not as much as we might like, as mu- uh, or as much as we might expect. Um, so I want to kind of finish with um, something that I just sort of noticed um, when I was bored in an archive, um, and I think this helps us understand this, and again it kind of filters that sort of question of impact. Um, I was in the... the um, the wi- Actually, no, sorry, I was in the Hampshire record office, um, and they've got these records about this place in Wiltshire um, called Winterbourne Dauncey. Um, and one of the striking things about um, 17th century poor accounts is it's really, really unusual that people 
dis- that the accounts describe uh, food being brought for the poor, which I think is really interesting. And when they do, it's usually wheat. And wheat is, in the 17th century, a more expensive form of grain. So you would have thought that if they are kind of properly in Duncan Smith about the whole thing, they would just be giving barley and oats, which are cheap, and which are, you know, they are, they are the cheapest form of grain. But actually, in the South, they seem to be giving people wheat. Um, and then I found a series of payments relating to this one lady called Martin's Wife. Uh, Martin is a surname. Um, and it's a series of food dolls uh, for the year 1623. This is the last famine year. Um, and in Easter, in July and in September, she is given wheat from the parish. Then, from October onwards, she's given a cheaper grain, barley. Now, what happens in October? That's when the harvest happens. So what seems to have happened is, uh, uh, she, you know, nice, you know, abundant grain uh, up to um, the harvest. The harvest goes badly. The parish cuts its costs by giving her a cheaper grain, but they are still paying for food. They're just reducing uh, the costs in line with what they can afford. Um, so, okay, I just wanted to end on a little kind of, um, on a little kind of hypothetical note. I think that's why poor accounts uh, don't suggest um, as high jumps in, uh, in um, expenditure as we might expect. Okay, finally, just to say something about impact. So, impact is very, very important. It is, I think, fundamental to what we need to do as historians. We need to think about if stuff matters. Um, does it matter to ordinary people if um, there is an economic crisis? What I think I'm, I'm finding with my research is that certain types of economic crises matter a lot, other ones less so. Financial crises don't, don't matter that much. Um, the harvest is really, really important. But finally, I think that we can probably detect that this um, government policy of propping up the income of the poor probably had the impact of uh, preventing famine. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't created in the university, so it wouldn't count as an impact case study. Um, but I, I, I still think it's a very interesting um, uh, government policy which has a real impact. And as historian, that's one of the things we should be looking for. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Again, any direct questions first? Yeah. Thank you very much. As a fellow historian, that resonated. Um, so, if you were then going to go for the rest of uh, the impact, would you have to write a book about the economic impact on the poor now, and then write it in its historical context? Would you have to start with a now, rather like a sort of Thomas Piketty mm. capital kind of book? Yeah. Um, or could you, could you do that, what you've just done? Could you um, uh, prove impact and the rest? Well, so, I think I, 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 might be, I might be misunderstanding this, but uh, in general, this kind of research is not very sort of impactful. Um, because although if I could sort of, you know, communicate it to a wider audience, which I'm very much trying to do, um, that would be great. I don't think any sensible government would take policy, um, you know, uh, ideas from 16th, 17th century England. I'm not saying that our current government wouldn't. But I'm saying any sensible government would. Um, but I think that's probably what would have to happen for it to have a kind of policy impact. Um, where I see historians um, fitting into this whole kind of jigsaw um, is that what we do, you know that old um, uh, Kipling quote, he that knows only England does not even know. He, that only, or he or she that only knows the present 
doesn't really know what the present is like. So what historians do is they provide a window, they provide other societies which are not the present, and that helps us understand the present a bit better. Um, I'd much prefer we were doing that than, you know, I had a meeting with IDS and he said, mm, yes, yeah, yeah, whipping the poor, terribly good idea, let's do that. Um, so, yeah, does that, does that answer your question? Mm. I was kind of, hmm. It's a tricky one, I think. It is, yeah. 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 Um, to avoid famine, you also have to have enough volume of food mm. to feed those who are hungry. Um, I'm just reading a diary of somebody from the 18th century at the moment, and he was a uh, steward to a very large landowner. And when, in times of, of, of real food shortage, he was talking about the poor law, but also going to the effort of finding grain elsewhere, mm. wheat, wheat in his yeah. case. So he, he was using his connections and, and, and the infrastructure that there was in England and beyond England yeah. developing to be able to get that grain to the people that needed. So I wonder if there's there was an impact from the poor law that encouraged a broader activity amongst people to mm. stop the poor from starving. We see, I haven't really thought of it that way. I, I, I think, so there's an article recently which argued that yes, the sole reason that England escaped famine in the 17th century was the poor law, and I think that's nonsense. Um, I think there has to be enough food, you know, um, otherwise distribution doesn't really matter. Um, uh, but I think what I, and, and I've kind of long accepted that, but what's interesting about what you're saying is that actually the fact that there was this system which propped up the incomes of the poor actually encouraged traders to then bring it to those, um, you know, those kind of situations, those kind of villages, um, then that's a kind of a, another impact. I hadn't really thought of it that way, so thank you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay, we're just talking about whether the poor law method, we've seen that it apparently did. I was just thinking about the ways it might have mattered. So uh, you were referring to Zen, and I was also thinking about the motivations that led to its establishment, and how it might have had an impact on the abilities of the people in various other ways, for example, cultural engagement, mm -hmm. if there was any um, of the poor, or in which ways this was um, the fact, or um, in terms of political engagement, and whether, you know, fighting famine uh, or harvest crises was motivated by the fact that mm. policymakers wanted to avoid uproar or the, yeah, whether they actually wanted to um, to increase the abilities or the grasp over different sorts of capital yeah. will, um, that the person's had or not. I think that's a really important question. Um, this is about 3,100 positions. Um, every single one of those positions is a political act by a poor person. Because what they have done is they have said, I'm not happy that I haven't got poor relief. I'm taking this to a magistrate. Now that's not, that's not kind of expressing an opinion of, about the distribution of wealth in the, in the country. It's not well, high politics in the way that we think about it. But it's engaging with the state and it's engaging with bureaucracy and it is doing something which is fundamentally about the distribution and use of power which is inherently political. So one of the really interesting arguments about um, this system is, what it, is, is, is it kind of really pushes the state into everyday life in a way that has not really happened before, with the possible exception of religion. Um, and it does this in two ways. Firstly, it, it, it causes things like this. It causes poor people to think, what's the statute say about my rights? Um, you know, what, what is the local culture of relief? How can I get how can I survive 
with the help of the state. But also it means that there are everyday kind of ordinary middling sort kind of people, almost entirely men, but, but actually not entirely, not completely, um, who are charged with running this. And this means that they are handling an amount of money which has never been handled by, you know, an, an amount of kind of state money which has never been handled by people flat low down the social scale before. And they're also making day-to-day decisions about fundamentally political questions such as what is deservingness? Do you become unable to work when you have one leg or do you need to have no legs? Where's the, where is the, the dividing line? And those kind of decisions which are philosophical, they're political and they're economic are being made by really ordinary people. And there's a really interesting set of arguments about the poor law which is that it helps create this kind of participatory monarchical republic, if you like, um, that is um, early modern England. So yeah, it, I mean, those questions are fascinating. And would you say that this was motivated by sort of an ethical attitude that developed, or was it just by the fear that it's a bit at of both. some point... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of both. I think the ethics is a real part of it, actually, and I, I don't go down that kind of Marxist line that it's all kind of social control. Um, I think people, and, and for religious reasons as much as anything, I think they do have an ethical desire to support the poor. Um, but yeah, there is an element of if we don't, then they're probably going to come and smash my windows, and we don't want that. So in the 18th century, people quite often refer to their payments to the poor law as legal charity. Mm, yeah. To emphasise that they don't really regard this taxation; they regard it as part of their duties to the community. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we continue the theme and get the question that's come up and join that, join the front. Um, and I have a few minutes left with them, yeah, and Matt as well. But with all, all three speakers, um, in case any questions, there are no cross-cutting, cutting themes. Uh, I mean, one question no one's raised yet is, is um, where teaching fits in. So we've been about our impact, you know, although the impact agenda has been run about research, actually our biggest impact of the universe is probably through through teaching, and actually that's an obvious way of how humanities uh, has an impact. Uh, and I told once someone, someone challenged a BP executive and said, why, why do you hire these humanities people to, to be oil salespeople and they know nothing about it? And the executive said, well, because they sell more oil. And I would say a lot about teaching is in a place like Oxford is to try and get people to think better more, or much more imaginably, understanding that they don't understand today, if they don't understand the past, you know, etc., etc. But, yeah, any, any thoughts on, on that? Well, funny enough, in the green paper today, will it use yet another costly time-consuming bureaucracy if it gets its way to have a, a teaching excellence framework? Uh, and as someone commented today, it probably won't measure teaching excellence, and it's definitely not a framework. <laughs> I think, I mean, as a historian, um, the, one of the... Um, and, and I like the BP anecdote, I think it's wonderful, and it really kind of does sort of fit in with, um, with my experience of teaching uh, history students. Um, the fundamental thing about history is that there is a subset of people, and I'm not saying that they're not strange, but they are, they are a market who find this stuff absolutely fascinating. And what we're doing is we're saying, well, this thing that you find fascinating, here are different ways of interpreting it. Um, have a think about what you think, and then construct that as an argument. Um, and that in terms of transferable skills, is an amazingly useful set of skills. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's almost like sort of channeling something which is fascinating and turning it into a, screwing it up and turning it into a marketable skill is part of the historian, part of the university historian's um, trade.
Yeah. Uh, very interesting the, to put these two together. I mean, I, I speak as a historian, old fashioned historian, but I'm also my faculty is director of research. I'll look out a few facts and think about it. And I'm thinking, Jonathan, your paper had all sorts of things about the value of the state propping up working people's incomes, about the growth of citizenship through petitions. So I'm, my thoughts are, you know, you should get in touch with Matt on how you could develop your work into an impact case study. Because I think there's lots there that you're a bit shy about. And I think you could, you know, you could do well just talking to each other about what you, where you might go with it. Because I do see you having an interview with ideas and slapping him around the head and saying, this, is, this, this worked in the 18th century. And if you take all these people's benefits away, we could be in serious trouble. Um, it, would you be able to arrange me to have a slapping that That would be great. Um, the reason I'm a bit shy about it is that I do think that I do think that 400 years ago was a long time ago, um, and we need to be very careful about sort of lazily transcribing, uh, sorry, transposing um, ideas which worked in the 17th century to the to the modern world. Um, the there's always a temptation as well, I think, um, to 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 kind of take lessons lessons from um, when England was a developing country and apply those to developing countries today. And I think again, there are real kind of dangers. Um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> it it would be nice if policymakers were more historically literate. Um, I, I I do I do. I have spoken to someone who's worked at the Treasury quite a lot and, and they tell me that it's very, very unusual that in a, a meeting they say, do you know what, we really need to talk to a historian. Um, perhaps, we, perhaps things would be better if they did, but I don't know. <laughs> no, but I, think, I mean, made in one route, but there's also, I don't know, I mean, like, there's also public engagement, mm. public, there are all these other things which I, which I struggle with, but policy is only one, one Avenue, there, there, there are other ones that you could also tap into. Because I think this is, the, I mean, one, when you say, well, lots of people out there, you know, who influence that stuff, well, we need to develop those partnerships and knowledge exchanges mm. or whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm again answering all the questions. Um, I do think that one of the things that we do in this department, which is local history, is really, really good at that because that's a, a really good way of engaging with. Um, the, the, the public uh, about this kind of history, particularly mm. um, I suppose what we might call history from below, what the past history, bottom of history, that kind of thing. Um, and so yes, it's so local history is really, really important for that. But no, I, I agree. I mean, it would be nice if the next article about the history of the poor law in the Guardian was not written by George Monbiot; it was written by someone who knew what they were talking about. Um, that would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <coughs> history does seem really drawn upon. Whereas uh, anthropology for quite a while was the largest export discipline and anthropologists would tend to work in a larger range of other disciplines that we called upon much more than historians. Whereas what they offer in terms of comparison of behaviour is probably quite a similar skill set in some respects. And um, I mean, so also behavioural economists are massively underproduced. <laughs> <laughs> The notion of a rational actor works to an extent, but uh, on the, the local level, how people actually behave has rather little to do with policy. Yes, yeah, so history is quite good at teaching that people are not always rational. Mm -hmm. um, there's one thing that we can learn from history, it's passively that. Well, I like to describe your peaks and the harvest, that's very much in 
Why do I... <laughs> um, because I know that those are bad harvest years and it makes logical sense that if the price of food is going up then uh, people are, um, uh, are going to need more poorly. I'm not saying they're going to behave rationally um, when the price of food goes up, but um, they <laughs> um, maybe I'm saying that I'm more rational than people in the past. That's terribly condescending, isn't it? E.P. Thompson would kick me in the face. Yeah, what's well, so you can at least uh, get the government to put a good book by pointing out that they'd overcome the economic crisis called the poor harvest, but yeah. they rely like financial sophistication to develop further, so we're out of a crisis called the financial sophistication. Yeah, I'd like to add a comment to what we've just discussed uh, concerning the, the, the contribution that historians can make, but also the message that might be um, brought to wider audiences uh, when we think about these things. I was quite um, surprised actually that what a talk that I've been attending yesterday about inequality today um, was quite similar to yours, um, but different in the sense that it only kind of gave implications on what inequality is in terms of income. Um, and in a way you've also done that, but we have also discussed how, which, which other implications this had. And I think the great strength that you have based on the data that you can access is that you kind of can draw on different sources that are in a way more or less well documented, mm. but that you can really look at the interplay of what's actually going on in, in a political dimension, a cultural dimension, and other dimensions, and not only in terms of the possibilities that people have based on their income. And if you do that, there's a lot of implications that you have on policy issues today. For example, um, there was... Uh, yes, in yesterday's talk, um, the presenters argued that there should be more investment in the UK in social housing because the, you've seen how um, it's quite there, there's quite a difficulty of, or there's quite a large share of uh, of income that people in the UK are or have to um, spend for their housing, and there's other countries where this is less so, and this might have again uh, implications for how they can be involved in, um, in, in social life in general, I suppose. Um, and so this is something that we, we can bring um, to wider audiences, especially if we also not only think about policy, but about organisations that work towards, towards these goals. And yesterday also I got quite a cynical comment when I was thinking about the, the, the organisations that interest me most, uh, which was that social enterprises only exist to uh, hire the people they are hiring, so that you know that everything is very publicly um, publicly dominated in a way, or by by policy maybe. So that we, when we were talking about the ethical issues, that we could look at actors and how they feed into that process, and how mm -hmm. the whole scene looks like, rather than only have one dominant stream. Mm -hmm. Good. Okay, well, let's uh, continue this discussion over a glass of wine in the, the common room. Um, before we back up, Peter, got, um, there's, I think, just one announcement I, I have to make, which is um, the next seminar is 12th of February, week, week, Friday week 4 of February term, which is February the, the 12th, and that's going to be on normality, if you want to know uh, what normality looks like. <laughs> and, uh, and see. Um, but now let's continue down in the common room over a glass of wine. Before we do that, please stand.